Good morning. How are you today? Good. You're like, you're Joe, you're shockingly close. I know. You're shockingly close to me. Um, today's sermon is not about change and how we don't like it, but it could be. Um, just so you know, we showed up this morning and this was kind of happening. We didn't really know about it. So uh, I just want to say thank you to all of our setup people who had to adjust this morning, our band. Thank you very much. And I know, like, it was really, it was actually kind of entertaining to watch some of you walk in and you're just like, wait a minute. This isn't normal. Like, you're just like, wow, this is different. And just want you to know, the power of observation is still working in your life. That's good. It is different. And uh, next week will be much further away. Um, and it was really cool during worship because we just brought the worship to you. So it's not like, hey, i got to finish this coffee. It's like, no, it's starting now and it's in your face. So, I mean, that was interesting. That was good. I wondered if you liked that or not. So today we're, uh, we're going to continue in our, the book of James. You're like, we've been in it for a while. I know, that's the joy of going through books in the Bible. We don't get to skip around and talk about what's on Joe's heart this week. We get to th- uh, look at a book and we get to say, what is this book teaching us about the Christian life? What does it mean to follow Jesus according to, and this summer we've been saying according to James. And we're calling our series, our series Act Like It because James is concerned with not only what we believe, but also how what we believe informs how we live. So there's no place in the Christian life just to say Christianity is about believing the right things. It is about believing the right things. There is truth. That's a very real thing. But then there's also right living. And for James, right believing and right living can never be separated. So you need to know this up front. Today is not one of those messages you're going to walk away being like, oh, that was so good. I so needed that. Oh, that refreshed my soul. Like if you've read ahead in James, you know James is going to put on the gloves this morning and he's going to deliver a knockout blow and say, stay on the ground. And like that's really what he wants you to do. Like stay on the ground until God lifts you up. That's where we're going today. You're like, that doesn't sound encouraging. It's not most of the time, but it will be because Jesus always offers grace. So just know that. So this week, I'm uh, I'm going to the doctor on Friday. I'm not sick, I don't think. It's just a checkup. I haven't had a checkup in 11 years. Some of you are like, that's irresponsible. I know that. Okay, I'm 32. I haven't had a checkup in 32. And since I got married, I had to get one before I was married to have a blood test to make sure I wasn't infected with any diseases. And so that was uh, just part of getting your marriage license way back when. I'm not sure if that's still true today. So I I got the checkup 11 years ago and things were going great. And I'm not sure how things are going to go on Friday, but I have to go. And so I've been thinking about the doctor. Now, I don't know about you, but who here loves going to the doctor? Don't raise your hand. You don't. I know you don't. You know I don't. Um, And so here's the reality. When I was growing up, my mom brought brought us to this pediatrician. His name was Dr. Udwadia. And Dr. Udwadia was, he was a good, he was a good pediatrician, but he would tell us to do some pretty strange things, all right? So there was this one time where I had like something that seemed like allergies. I was sneezing a lot, I had a bad cold, my eyes were running, and so he was kind of looking at my mom and he kind of gave me this checkup and my mom was like, what's wrong with him? And he says, I think Joe has allergies. Now just to be clear, they did have tests for allergies back then, but he didn't test me for those, he just sort of guessed. And this is what the medical advice he told my mom. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to rip out all the carpets in your house and put in hardwood and Joe needs to start wearing goggles. So, so the medical advice was do an extreme home makeover and uh, put some goggles on. That's not what I would like to call, I don't think that's in you know, the uh, diagnosis handbook of what you're supposed to do. That's not really how you treat something, but that's what we were supposed to do. And then there's this other time where we went in and the doctor was kind of looking at me, it was a physical, and he said to my mom, because she always took us to the appointment, she said, I think Joe's going to be about six foot two, 
350 pounds. And when you're like 13 years old and you're like six foot, or no, I was actually more like eight because I think I was 6'4 when I was 13. And he was like 6'2", 350. I'm like, that's a lot to look forward to. He was way off. He was way wrong. Not so much on the weight, but definitely with the height, he was way off. And then he would give you a shot and he would say this, because I hated shots. No one likes shots. He said, you say one, two, three, and I'll say four, five, six. So that's how long the shot was going to take. So he'd put it in your arm and I'd be like, one, two, three. And he'd be like, four, five, six. And I'd be like, dude, you count really slow. Nobody's excited to go to the doctor. You know, maybe some of you are here this morning and, and you've been on the other side of a bad report. Like, you know that you've been there and the doctor's delivered some hard news to you. And today, I want, to think, I want us to think about what James is saying to us, that he's going to give us a diagnosis of what's wrong with this church that he's writing to. Because James doesn't rail against this church throughout his whole letter, but he gets to the point here where he tells us that the church that he is writing to, the people, the Christians, are sick. And so he's going to tell us the diagnosis, then he's going to give us a choice of whether or not we want to get better. If we want to get better, we have to do one thing. If we want to stay sick, we can do another. And then he's going to tell us what it means to experience healing. Like he's going to tell us what it means to be cured. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles. If you're a first-time guest, you've never been here before, we're glad you're here. Uh, we always put the scriptures on the screen. If you need a Bible, let us know. We'd love to give you one. You can pull it up on your app this morning. And we'll be in James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what Dr. James tells us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Gotcha. Like, there's just this moment you're reading the Bible and you're just saying, like, could you imagine receiving this letter from James and you just get to this part and you're like, well, that pretty much settles it. That's, yep, that's what's happening. Like, he doesn't leave much room for, well, you know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But see, we don't actually know why this church was fighting for, for the external reasons. We don't know if they were arguing over uh, bad doctrine. We don't know if they were arguing over uh, leadership positions, which is what a lot of people think they're fighting about, but we don't know for certain. But James does not tell us the external issues that are wrong, other than the fact that they're quarreling and fighting. But he tells us why they're happening. And he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He says, it's the desires that are raging, that are battling within you. So here's what James says. The reason this church is marred by infighting is because their desires are wrong. This word desire in the Greek is hedone, where we get our word hedonism. So what's actually happening in, happening in the church that James is writing to is, is all of these people are at each other's throats because their ultimate motive is their own pleasure. They're after pleasure, prestige, and power. And James says, do you know why this church is an absolute relational train wreck? Because it's all about you. 
because it's all about what you want. It's not about what Jesus wants. It's not about his leadership. It's not about his authority. It's about your preferences. It's about your selfish desires. It's about you. Interestingly enough, sin is not something we do because of external forces happening to us. Sin always flows outside of us, or excuse me, from within us. Sin always flows out of our hearts. And so what's interesting to note is is that no church can survive selfishness. If a church becomes selfish, it will always unravel. When the church becomes about me and what I want, it stops becoming about what Jesus and what he wants, things fall apart. And we can probably all share, if we've been in church for any length of time, maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian and you know of situations like this, we can all share experiences growing up when we saw a church unravel because it became too much about the people and it was no longer about Jesus and his mission. No church split, no church fight is born out of humility. Humility never leads to church fights. Pride always does. And so James tells us some things that are happening in this church. He's telling us the fallout. What are some things that are happening? Well, first he says they're killing one another. Some commentators actually believe that they're actually killing one another, but I don't think James would gloss over it this quickly if they were, I mean, could you imagine if you're like, hey, I killed, you know, I killed John at church today. Uh, Don't do that anymore. That's bad. No, no, I'm pretty sure it would be a bigger deal than just you're killing each other. So what does James mean when he says you're killing each other? Well, interestingly, Jesus, James's older half-brother, said something about this. He actually said that we have murderous intent when we're angry with each other, we're contemptuous toward each other, we're arrogant, and we hate each other. See, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, If you're angry at your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. So there's relational murder happening in this church. This sounds like a great church to be a part of. And then he says that they're coveting. What does it mean to covet? It means you have something that I want. It's like jealousy, but then it goes further than just I want that. It becomes this focused, earnest desire that says, I have to have what you have. So instead of this church counting their own blessings, they're counting other people's blessings and they're coveting. See, sometimes we see people with nice things and we say, oh, it'd be nice to have that boat. I mean, it's the summer. How many of you thought it'd be nice to have a boat? I've thought about that. It'd be great to have a boat. But then there comes this point where you see someone with a boat and you're jealous of them and you want what they have and then you feel like God is holding out on you because you don't have a boat. And then you act like a victim because you don't have a boat. That's coveting. And then James says something that I think is absolutely scary. He says, your prayer lives are a mess. 
He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So some people have just stopped praying. So if this was the only thing James says, we could say, well, guys, the application today is the reason you don't have what you really want, the reason you don't have the boat is because you haven't asked God for it. So what I want to command you to do is go home and pray for that boat. Some people don't have what they want because they haven't asked God. But then James makes it really convicting. He says, when you ask. So if you are praying... So for the people in this church who are still praying, he says, when you ask, you do not receive, because when you ask, you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. How many of us would say, yep, that's my prayer life. Don't raise your hand. Like, this is like super in your face, like, what's on your prayer list? See, because God can see the heart of what you're asking for. See, sometimes we ask God for things so we can build our identity on those things, and because God is a good dad, he doesn't give us what will actually hurt us. And how many of us have had the ridiculous idea that, God, if you give me a million dollars, I'm going to become the most generous person on the planet, I'm going to bless this person, I'm going to bless that person, and I'm just going to become Mr. You know, Daddy Warbucks, and everyone's going to be blessed through my life, but Lord, you've got to give it to me first. Hey, listen, you're as generous as you are right now based on what you're already giving with what you have. We all think if we had excess, we'd give more. And maybe you would give more numerically, but you're just as generous as you are today. More doesn't make you automatically generous. And God actually sees that our prayers for more are sometimes really just about us. You're like, this is uncomfortable. I know. It's like shockingly in my face, and I hope in yours as well. So what's the diagnosis from Dr. James? What's the real issue at this church? Pride. This church has a case of pride. They're covetous. They're not treating one another nicely. Their desires are more important than the glory of God. And James says, you're sick. So that's the diagnosis. The church is sick with pride. James continues in verse 4. This is not going to get good for a little bit, so just hang with me. He says, you adulterous people. That's not very nice, James. I thought I was a champion. I thought this was my best life now. Apparently not. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scriptures say without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So throughout this letter so far, James has called these people brothers. Like, if you read the book of James, he's called them brothers, but he's also called them my dear brothers. So James has a pastoral love for the people he's writing to. And then he says, and by the way, you're adulterers. I don't know about you, but I did not roll out of bed this morning thinking, I cannot wait to share with people at Spring Valley that it's possible that they're committing spiritual adultery. Like, that did not fire me up. My alarm went off, and I'm like, yes, I can't wait to tell you that. And yet James says it to his people. This word in the Greek is actually in the feminine form. He calls the entire church, both men and women, 
adulteresses. And you're like, well, why would James say that? Well, there's some Old Testament background to that. In the Old Testament, God was often portrayed as a husband. And the Israelites, who were God's people, were often portrayed as a bride. And so God gave the Israelites this picture of him and the Israelites in a covenant marriage that God was so intensely faithful to Israel that they could think of him like a husband, and he wanted the Israelites to be so intensely faithful to him that they were like a bride. And this just gives us an amazing picture of how much God loves us and how much God cared for the Israelites and how his heart was to have this close, personal, intimate relationship with them, to know them and to love them and to serve them like a good and godly husband would today in his marriage. But there were times, too many to count, when Israel would run and cheat on God, and they would commit spiritual adultery. And what was that? It's when they went and served the other gods of the surrounding nations. If you want to learn more about God's response to Israel's spiritual adultery, you can read the book of Hosea, where God told Hosea to go and buy his wife who was a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. That wasn't on the top 2013 baby name list, by the way, whose name was Gomer, to buy her after she had run away and cheated on him to take his wife back into his home for the purpose of showing Israel that that's what God was willing to do. And you know, you think about when James just calls the church a bunch of adulteresses, like that's Old Testament. They're like, we usually don't really want to think of God that way. Like, we think God was in a bad mood in the Old Testament, and then Jesus showed up, and he's in a really good mood now. And he just kind of smiles at us and gives us big hugs and gives us a bucket of suckers and says, oh, you're my special ones. Oh, everything you do just makes me so happy. Oh, you just busted the gates of hell wide open. Oh, that's fine. Come here, I love you so much. Oh, yes, everything's going to be just fine. And then James shows up after the resurrection and looks at a church and says, yeah, you're cheating on God. And then James says, if you're a friend of the world, you hate God. If you're a friend of the world, you're God's enemy. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? Well, growing up, if you grew up in anything that resembled a fundamentalist movement, meaning that the idea of what it meant to be a Christian meant what you didn't do, not so much what you do do, like a lot of us think worldliness is, is I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't watch R-rated movies, and I don't gamble, and you know what? I'm a pretty good person. That's, that's what we think when we say avoid worldliness. And I would say it's wonderful to avoid those things. I'm not saying, no, don't do those things. Go for it. No, I'm not saying that at all. But what's interesting is James doesn't talk about any of those issues in his book. So the question would be is when James calls the church the friend of the world, what has he been addressing throughout the book of James? What does worldliness look like? Well, these people were discriminating against those who were poor. So James kind of says that discrimination is friendship with the world. Putting other people down with our words is friendship with the world. 
A desire for personal glory is friendship with the world. Jealousy is friendship with the world. Anger is friendship with the world. Having a version of faith that doesn't move you to action is friendship with the world. Hearing God's word but not doing it is friendship with the world. Pursuing your own pleasures is friendship with the world. Prayer lives that revolve around getting more than we already have is friendship with the world. You're like, where did you get all those? From the book of James. Many people think that when James kind of comes to chapter four, verse four, that he's summarizing everything that he's been addressing in the book and just saying, you know what's really happening? You're better friends with the world than you are with God. And see, some of us, we love to create this wonderful middle third option in Christianity. See, we like to think that we're somewhere between total rebellion against God and total surrender to Jesus Christ. And we say, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not rebelling against him, but I'm not totally surrendered to him. And so we just think, oh, you know what? I can just create this third option. We call it American Christianity where everything's just fine. Like I can be sort of committed to Jesus. It doesn't affect my priorities. It doesn't affect my spending. It doesn't affect how I spend my time. It doesn't affect how I treat my spouse. It doesn't affect how I work my job. It's just kind of one of those things where it's like, yes, I'm, I'm sort of a churchgoer, but it hasn't affected anything. But here's the thing. How different is your life from people who don't know Christ? See, because do you know what friendship with the world ultimately is? When your life looks exactly like everybody else you know. When everyone else is going off about discriminating against people, you're like, yeah, I agree with that. When everyone else is jealous and angry and coveting what other people have, that's you too. When you use your words to put other people down, when you join in the office gossip, that's you too. When you hear a sermon and don't change anything in your life, you're just kind of a religious person, but you're not really interested in changing and transforming, worldliness. When you want to hear the word of God but not do it, when you want to say, I have faith, but there's nothing in your life to convict you that you actually are a person of faith, there's no evidence to say, yes, my faith has works. So this text is just screaming at us this morning. Are you a friend of the world? Because what's weird is that God, God is not interested in half-hearted devotion. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he wants you. But look at what verse 5 says. It says, or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? And that's a pretty complicated verse, but let me just tell you what it really means when you boil it down. God is jealous for your life. God jealously longs for you. And you're like, Joe, you just said jealousy is wrong. Yeah, but when God is jealous, it's a good thing because he wants you just for yourself, and he doesn't want you to have another spouse. Ladies, how many of us who are married, or how many of you who are married would love the idea if your husband had a, another woman on the side? Men, how many of us would love if our spouses said over the lunch today, hey, I just want you to know I'm seeing someone else? We'd be like, oh, that's great, honey. I'm so happy for you. Does that really, like, fulfill who you are? Does that, like, help you to stay happy? Okay, you should keep doing that. No, we'd be devastated we'd be devastated. And God is devastated when our hearts aren't fully his. God actually feels like we're hating him when we're half-hearted. 
one thing I've been thinking about this week is that James writes with a stronger conviction over the seriousness of sin than most of us hold to. Like how many of us are thinking right now, this is kind of extreme, James and Joe. I'm not putting myself on the same level as James, I'm just the messenger. Like this feels super extreme to us, right? Like we don't really like when God says, it's all or nothing. I get your whole heart or I don't have your heart. So James is going to give us a simple choice if we want to heal from our pride and stop our spiritual adultery. Verse 6. I'm so glad verse 6 is here. It's like an oasis for us in a, in, a, in a scathing rebuke. James says, but he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is ready, willing, and able to pour out over your life and over my life for any half-hearted devotion His grace. A lot of us think maybe I've used up too much of God's grace, and I just am here to tell you this morning, God's grace is not a commodity. It's nothing that runs dry. Like if you had money in your bank account and you just spent it and spent it and spent it and spent it and you went to the outlets and then you went out to dinner and you, someone said, hey, at some point the money's going to run out. It does run out, right? Like money's finite. Grace doesn't work that way. Grace is like a waterfall that never stops running, that always will pour over your life. When we hear hard words like we're hearing this morning, you need to know that the grace of God is so available to us as a church, to you as a person, for your family, for your relationships. And catch this, James is talking to Christians. See, some of us think, I really needed the grace of God before I came to Jesus. And James tells us, no, you need it every moment after you come to him. And maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you need to know that God's grace, the forgiving, restoring, rescuing grace of God is for you. And you're like, you don't know what I've done. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It just does not run dry. Why? Because James tells us he gives us more grace. It's without limit. So what's the choice that James's audience and us have to make? The choice is between pride and humility. See, because in order to receive the grace of God, humility is required. Yes, the grace of God is free, but there's a position of your heart, that your, the position your heart has to be in in order to receive it, and that's the place of humility. No one is going to be given God's restoring and forgiving grace if they don't think they need it. In fact, for those who reject the grace of God and stay in their pride, God will remain an enemy. So the choice in order to heal is humility. James has talked about humility so much in this letter. Last week he talked about how real wisdom is marked by a humble life. A few weeks before he said if we're going to receive God's word into our life, we have to be humble. And here he tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble.
humility is this way of life that says, I so need God. I am so lost without him. I need him. I need his word to be shaping me. I need his people to be loving me. I need him. See, God stiff arms pride. Many of us are looking forward to football season. And if you've ever seen like a wide receiver or a running back kind of running down the sideline and someone's trying to tackle them and they give them the stiff arm, that's what God does to us when we're proud. He opposes us. But when we're humble, he takes that stiff arm, he turns around, and he opens both of them, and he embraces us. Because he gives grace to the humble. But grace is only for the humble. So James is going to now tell us, if we want to heal from our pride, we need to be humble. And then he's going to tell us so clearly what humility will look like and how this church can heal. Here's the cure. Verses 7 to 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. If we could summarize what James is telling this church to do in one word. Even, he gives ten commands in this paragraph, but there's one word to describe what he's calling this church to do, and that's repent. This is one of the most crystal clear calls in all of the Bible to repentance. And it kind of describes repentance in a way that doesn't really make us feel good when it's just like, sorry, God. Got to unload the dishwasher. Like it seems that James is envisioning a church and God's people taking repentance so seriously that their countenance changes, that the attitude of their heart changes, and maybe laughter isn't the best medicine when we've rebelled against God. Let's just walk through this quickly. What does he tell the church to do to turn from their pride? First, he tells them to submit. This is the most un-American word ever. Submit themselves to God's authority. Humility is marked by glad submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Life with God is not like living in a democracy. It's like living in a kingdom with you as one of God's subjects and him as the king who has claim on every detail of your life. Too many of us are looking and living autonomously from God because you have been told your entire life that being an individual and living life for your own happiness and doing what you want to do is really what it takes and that you deserve that. And James comes along and says, if you're looking to be truly right before God, you need to submit yourself to God's authority. We hate authority. All of us at, every, at all different levels have authority issues. 
We don't like having someone over us. A lot of us think that we should be the boss. A lot of us don't like when maybe, ladies, when our husband leads the family. A lot of us think that we should be in charge. A lot of us think that we know better than someone else. And on a human level, maybe you do. But on a spiritual level, you don't. We don't submit to God's authority. We are willing to be God's equal, but not willing to be his slave. And so often, repeatedly in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called slaves of Christ. Do you think of yourself that way? Then he tells us to resist or stand against the devil. The devil's primary goal for your life is to separate you from God and make you believe that you actually don't need God's authority in your life. That's what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to create a wedge or a separation between you and God. And James just says, resist that. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Now, I'm not interested at all in challenging the devil to anything. He has power, he's strong, but Jesus Christ in you is stronger. So you need to stand against Satan. You don't challenge him to a fight. You just simply resist him, and he will flee. And when you're facing temptation, you don't like, <clears throat> you don't look at temptation and think, oh, I'm just going to stand here and resist it. No, nine times out of ten, you need to run away. Because that's what we're really supposed to do, supposed to do run away. But sometimes you just need to resist him. Because Satan's goal for your life is to destroy your relationship with God. Then he tells us, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God's desire is closeness with us. I don't know about you, but my personal experience is this. When I need to repent of wrong things that I've done, I actually don't want to get close to God. I want to keep him at a distance because of my guilt and my shame. Have you ever experienced that before? But James says, when you're ready to heal, you keep taking steps towards God. And as you take steps towards him, he takes steps towards you. He always reciprocates. He always reciprocates. Drawing near is like this idea of worship, like you're drawing near to God in worship. And it's not just like you go home and you put on Hillsong. It's like your life just begins to say, all that I'm doing is for God. Every word that I speak Every place that I go, every decision I make, it's for the Lord. It's worship. And as you draw near to God, he will absolutely draw near to you. True repentance is always marked by an internal change of heart and change behavior. This is what James means when he says, wash your hands and purify your heart. James is saying, I don't just want there to be like, something to happen inside of you, I want your behavior to change. And too often, maybe in our parenting, we only want our kids' behavior to change, but James says, no, no, there's a heart issue as well. And true repentance is always both. Our hearts change and our actions change. That's what it means to really repent, that you stop doing what you're repenting of. You turn around, you go the other direction. Your hands are clean and your heart is clean. 
Now, what James says in verse 9, I'm going to read one more time because I think it's probably maybe the most shocking verse in the whole book to us in our context, in our culture. James says this, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. When's the last time you've wept bitterly over your own sin? When's the last time you were mourning over something you said or someone you hurt or something you did? I mean, a lot of us, like, in the whole world of ministry and church world and books, like, we are constantly looking for that positive message. We love positive messages as Americans. And you know what? I love to be positive. However, being positive is not always the right approach. Sometimes God doesn't want you to know that you're more than a conqueror. He doesn't want you to know that you're a champion. He calls you to a season of grieving and mourning over your own stuff. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, Joe, I'm a Christian, but I am, I am living a spiritually adulterous life. It would be right and good to grieve that. He says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, catch this. This is very important. The Christian life is not about acting like Eeyore, okay? Like that's not what I'm advocating at all. But what James is saying is that there's a time and a place to grieve over what you've done. Why would we grieve? I mean, Jesus Christ defeated death on the cross. He, he rose from the grave. I mean, shouldn't we be the most joyous people on the planet? Most of the time. But because we're in a relationship with God, what are we grieving? We're grieving that we hurt him. We're grieving that we broke the heart of God. That's what we grieve. We don't grieve the consequences. We can, but that's not what James is saying. We grieve that we've hurt our dad. You know what I love about James's picture of repentance? It doesn't take three minutes. It takes some real reflection about your life. It takes depth. It takes cognitively, emotionally, and spiritually going before God and not rushing in his presence And repenting. I know you're really busy, but if you feel like this message is convicting towards you, maybe there's some time needed just to grieve and mourn and wail. You know if that's true for your life or not. Last thing James says 
when we go through the process of repentance and we humble ourselves before God, when we recognize our own spiritual poverty, there's great news. God will lift us up. If you lift yourself up, God's going to oppose you. But if you submit your life to God, He will take care of helping you back to your feet. See, because when James says, stay down, it's not so that you can stay down forever. You get low, you humble yourself, you submit yourself to God. So in the right moment, God reaches down his hand and he lifts you up. And he takes your face and he kind of wipes away your tears because you've been weeping bitterly. And he takes you by the cheeks and he says, I love you. You're mine. Nothing will ever change that. My grace will never run dry. But he doesn't get to say that to you until you hit the floor. Prideful people never receive the embrace of God because they're not looking for it. We're going to receive communion this morning. I have some questions I want us to ask as we're receiving communion, and Jeff's going to sing a song, and as we just kind of reflect on what the Spirit is saying to us through this message. Here are some three questions I want you to think about. What are you making too much about you? What are you making too much about you? Where are you stealing God's glory and looking for your own to take its place? Question number two, have you humbled yourself before God? Thirdly, what do you need to grieve? What do you need to grieve this morning?